Before we get into this next episode of the Cannabis Diversity Report, I want to give a big thank you and shout out to my friends and sponsors from Forefront Ventures. You can visit their dispensaries, mission dispensaries in Illinois, Massachusetts, Michigan, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. Yo, what's going on, everybody out there? We're back with another week of the Cannabis Diversity Report. And this week, I have Dashita and Ice Dawson in the building. She blazed. What's going on, y'all? Woo, what's up? What's up? Up it up. So, yeah, y'all, I got to tell y'all, it's a pleasure to have them in the building. Um, Dashita and Ice are both um, doing a lot of great stuff in the cannabis industry. Um, and I'd love to have them tell me about it first a little bit. Y'all tell me a little bit about She Blaze and, and your journey, how you both got started in the cannabis industry. I'll do uh, the youngest first. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, me first. Yes. Okay, cool. Well, She Blaze is a cannabis podcast from a woman's perspective. Uh, I feel like when I got into the industry in 2016, women, people of color, they were really misrepresented. And I felt like with this podcast, we could give cannabis culture and news and from a real talk perspective. And we definitely give that real talk every week. It's a unique perspective, and I appreciate Ice being uh oh the creator. It looks like our internet all of a sudden has been been good, and now we're challenging. Um, but yeah, she 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 did see a hole, and um, at the same time, I was seeing a hole in uh, just strategy, business strategy, uh, management, um, brand development, and uh, consumer education. Things that when I was at Target and Victoria's Secret, we we really live behind when we want to push new 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 market ideas like the plus size market or multicultural or sports in in a um, in a sexy brand like Victoria's Secret. So there was a lot of parallel. And so when we jumped in, um, we started with MJM Strategy. And I brought ICE in initially to help really lead all of our events and um, uh, merchandising concepts for ourselves, but as well as our, our clients. Um, and over time, it really became a lot of information we were learning, barriers we were breaking down, first at Essence Festival, first at NW. ACP National Conference, first at the Black Enterprise Entrepreneur Summit, um, as far as a cannabis business. And we saw that Black and Brown folks really needed more representation, but they also needed more education. And so eventually in 2018, I wrote my first edition of How to Succeed in the Cannabis Industry, now in the third edition, which you can get on Amazon, Target.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or the ebook exclusively on the Weedhead.com. But all of this together has given us a platform to be able to take everything we've learned over the nearly five years in the industry and give it back to the community in a way that's affordable and digestible. Absolutely. And I think it's super dope that y'all actually do it as a family business. Um, one of the things I was saying before we came on, I, y'all are like the Wayne's family of cannabis. I know your, your older sister's also, um, your older sister, Imani, she's also um, do stuff in the cannabis industry too. But how, what made y'all decide, how did y'all decide to, what made y'all decide to, you know, do it together? How did you come about as a, you know, as a family business part? 
out of necessity, um, you know, to be honest, you know, when we transitioned, when I transitioned, I was the first to officially leave a corporate position um, and a very uh, successful career to say, hey, I'm going to be in the cannabis industry. And I'll be honest, Imani had already been looking at it, participating um, behind the scenes. Uh, and I think it was just a lot of fear that everything I'd worked with or worked for, uh, Ivy League graduate would somehow get lost in this in this industry. And um, out the gate, I also didn't trust anyone. A lot of people are grifters in the industry, and at least the early years, they're transitioning, uh, have a whole new story about who they are. And so being able to bring in my sisters meant that I had a squad automatically, but also we're pretty gifted in different areas. And out the gate, I knew I could leverage ICE out the gate. She knew more about cannabis than I did um, from a consumer perspective. And there was no way that I was going to be able to lead consumer marketing strategy for her clients without her input. But Imani is a communications and media strategist. And a lot of the story that we're being told in media is incorrect. And um, it is part of what perpetuates the negative stereotypes, especially for black and brown folks. And so being able to be a, you know, a Voltron force of all of our skill set out the gate made me have a competitive advantage, period. Right. And then, like you said, not to mention having that retail experience and also Ivy League education. What was it what was it like making that transition from, you know, like the corporate business world? What do you see as the biggest opportunity or like, you know, advantage that you had coming from there? Well, I mean, I know and understand contracts, right? Like that's a big advantage. Uh, people don't like to sign an NDA in the cannabis industry, uh, or they don't know, <laughs> don't know what, what an NDA is. is. That's that too. You know, mm -hmm. um, we've had a lot of uh, interactions that have been very, very interesting from the earliest clients until up until like some of the largest MSOs is to see really poor mismanagement of the PNL, um, millions and millions of dollar loss. Um, and I think I the only thing that I, I guess I take away is that what gives me an advantage is that I understand operational excellence and um, P&L management. And that means that whatever I do, whether small or large, there's going to be some um, financial benefit for the entity. Um, whereas I don't think a lot of people get that that's still very important. Even the MSOs, uh, they think it's weed, so it's just going to sell itself. And no, it's a consumer product like any other consumer product that needs some pretty strong understanding of the dynamics in order for you to be successful. Right. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more because on your Instagram the other day, I saw you dropping some gems the other day about market dynamics and why that's so important for people to understand in the cannabis industry. Could you, um, you know, share a little bit more about that? Because people don't understand that. People just think, oh, it's just weed and it's going to sell itself, but it's really important. Well, I know ICE has a strong opinion on this because I think, you know, being younger than us, how it's marketed to her age group has been, you know, really hypersexualized and I think really not focused on cannabis as medicine. And then to have me as an older sister who have, I have autoimmune issues, I struggle with the fact that we don't consider the medicinal part within the market dynamics. Once it starts talking about adult use, we really stop thinking about, well, people are still using it medicinally. And I think we haven't looked at models like I call it the Advil model. You can get a prescription for ibuprofen behind the counter, or you can 
as an adult, buy it over the, you know, over the counter in a branded way. And that's really what cannabis is. It doesn't move away from being medicinal. But then there are some street legacy market dynamics that people who are legislators and lawmakers do not get. They don't know what an ounce is. They don't understand um, how like the, per the, the, the common purchase number uh, or amount is an eighth and what that street uh, value tends to be um, and how the legal market compares to it once you've added in all the taxes. Um, I also think, and I want you to talk about it, they don't understand what good flower is, right? Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I love your Advil model, but for me coming from a little bit more of a holistic perspective, like this is still a plant. It grows naturally across the world, right? Like the people go in different countries to find specific strains. So it's a herb, you know, yes, we could take the Advil model, but we could also just break it down a little bit more simple. Like this could be in your backyard. So when you don't have the ability to even home grow or have a community grow, it's really a whole, it's a mess. And for me as a younger person that doesn't always want to rely on uh, the capitalist medical market, I want to be able to grow my own medicine. And I do think that people get better flower when they grow it themselves, when they know how it grows, when they care about it, when you know the seed you're putting into the ground, what it's called, what are some of the properties and terpenes. So that's really, I'm like, I love the, I, I don't really love and most of the markets in America because you can't even grow it. Mm -hmm. That's true. Right. And so Ice, you know, when you know, one of the things that I want to ask you about too is I know with She Blaze, a lot of what you have been focused on is, is reaching women and educating women about cannabis, especially women of color. I know in our community, um, there has always been a lot of stigma around cannabis. So what do you think is like an important message that you have for, um, you know, women as the cannabis industry grows in terms of taking advantage of opportunities? Well, absolutely. Uh, my mom always called it medicine growing up. I never really saw it as like weed or cannabis until I became like a teenager. And I'm like, oh, this is what y'all going to jail for? Oops. Um, so like for me, I feel like as women and I talk to women of color, it's really talking about the health of benefits. You know, all the women I know that are over 30 suffer from just basic benefits that cannabis can help. So I really try to tell them that, yes, you can have your glass of wine, but you can smoke your joint, you can eat your joint. There's transdermal patches, there's tinctures. There's so many ways to consume this natural plant that grows from the earth uh, to really benefit you on some basic multivitamin feels. Yeah, no, I think that she does a great job on that. And I'll be honest and say that women also have a lot of the ailments. She's watched it. Our mom had autoimmune issues and I have it and it's running our family. And, you know, uh, women of color especially are more prevalent in those uh, those areas, Crohn's disease, MS, lupus. And to have a conversation, especially with people who are just approaching 30 and you're starting to see signs of those things, right? You you, you have to be able to re-educate them on the fact that <clears throat> cannabis can be a benefit and not just cannabis from a marijuana perspective, but hemp-based CBD, hemp-based uh, cannabinoids also. Um, but also not for nothing, we talked about this, 
some things that were part of the culture, we were, we, as soon as we moved out to the West Coast, I was like, you want me to dab on what? That looks like, that's gross. Mm-hmm. And so there's a part of me, that you know. Like a crack pipe. Yes, like, yeah. <laughs> a part of me is also about aesthetics. So yes, while we love to talk about health and wellness, and I think ICE does a great job in like fusing it all with spirituality and as well as with, yeah, like wellness in general, which is a big trend among young millennials. Like they, they're taking better care of themselves than Generation X, right? And uh, definitely as compared to the boomers. And so I, I so appreciate that, but I also can appreciate aesthetics. And, you know, shout out to my Soros, the AKAs can't tell us nothing anymore, right? Right. But no, my Soros are not going to dab in a dungeon, right? We're not dabbing on something that looks like a crack pipe. I'm not even sure that we want to um, have an experience that feels like you have a whole bunch of fire on the table. It feels a little seedy. It feels a little dark. So we did a lot and um, Ice was really instrumental in creating the Bud and Bougie event concept for us because we really knew that the experience itself was also just subpar. It was definitely more geared towards white male, 18 to 25, stone owner, girl, stoner guy type of um, environment. And, you know, I started thinking about, well, I'm 40 plus and yet Method Man is still zaddy and you feel (laughs) fine, but we're not, you know, that's not where we're getting our cannabis education from, nor are we thinking that's the experience we want to have with children and, you know, being a mom. And, you know, so I think we started to look at how do we curate more experiences that are really designed for multiple ages, but women specifically. Right. Yeah. And like you said, like with women, that that don't go with the ivy and pearls, huh? You're not, that's totally culture. (laughs) I I mean, nothing really goes with, uh, I feel like women are in such a niche hole in cannabis. You know, uh, there's so many black women, especially coming into the industry right now, trying to change that representation. But it is definitely hard when they're like, hey, try this product and it's a half naked chick on it. And I don't know how many people really want to try that product, you know. So I do think there is a struggle right now within the industry as we talk about marketing and branding. You know, they're like, don't market to children. But it's like, does it have to be Pornhub? Right. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah. you, you, you talked about the importance of like cannabinoids and terpenes too, right? And I know we have listeners of all different levels. Could y'all break down like um, what, what cannabinoids are and what terpenes are and why they're important? Oh, that's a molecular biologist over here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> terpenes is for the smells for me. You right. know, I like mine to smell like fruit. So right. that's the terpene I know. Right. No, no, no. <laughs> She's uh, funny because she actually does know this quite well. But yes, I'm a molecular biologist. So I love this part. And um, the molecules within cannabis as a genus are the same, whether it's hemp or marijuana. You should know that the designation of hemp is a man-made designation. This idea that something, the plant has to have less than 0.3% THC and that the World Health Organization is less than 0.2% THC is something that you have to manipulate in its cultivation process to achieve it because it's not naturally that way. Um, The hemp has all of the cannabinoid profile, all of the terpenes. The cannabinoids are the ones that we know and we talk about. We talk about the major ones, THC and CBD. Um, We actually are, we call those 
phytocannabinoids because they were made from plants. But believe it or not, we all have an endocannabinoid system, which means it's inside and it's something endogenous. We make it ourselves and we have endocannabinoids. So we have one called anandamide that molecularly when you look at it, it looks so similar to THC that you, you even an expert could confuse them. Um, so they're what we call analogous, meaning they basically are like twins. And what anandamide can do in the body is what THC does in the body. So it's important for people to understand first and foremost, when she says this is a plant that grows naturally, when it grows naturally, it has THC, it has CBD, it has CBG, it has CBN, it has hundreds of cannabinoids. And we only focus on THC because that's the one that's been demonized because that's the one that causes the high as we know it. But the more we study it, the more we realize that they actually through chemical reactions that usually happen in the body, but you can also force it in the lab, they change to each other and, and can change formation. CBG is a great new, like new rising cannabinoid because it's really the precursor cannabinoid for all of the other ones. It can actually transform once it's been put in your body and, and transform based on what you need. What I love about cannabinoids, especially CBD um, now is because it's breaking down the barrier on talking about it. Um, it, it, it is such an anti-inflammatory. It helps with pain. It helps with um, anxiety. The list goes on. Um, we can think about uh, so many different usages that can uh, be leveraged. And I think right now CBD at least is the, um, the, 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 the one that feels less uh, uh, stigmatized. And therefore we can open conversations to 55 and older. And it, it eventually opens the conversation to the rest of the cannabinoid spectrum. But believe it or not, it doesn't end with the cannabinoids. When you have things that you've isolated only CBD or isolated only THC, there's some level of efficacy, but it definitely doesn't work as well as the full plant spectrum, meaning you're getting the cannabinoids in the natural uh, percentages and the terpenes. Terpenes are what we call like the rest of the entourage. My best example is a New York City um, club. It's always mad people out in front of the door. And, you know, every receptor has a bouncer and is going to determine who gets to go in. And the way cannabis works is that it's everybody, including the terpenes, that come trying to get into the door and trying to impact whether or not THC or CBD or other cannabinoids are let into the club, if you will. Um, but the terpenes modulate the high. You can have something with 37% THC, it feels like, oh, that's going to be fine. But if it does not have a good terpene profile, guess what? You are going to be very disappointed in, in, in the experience. And so I think the when I'm, <laughs> yes, the impact is not the same. When I'm shopping now, I look more at the terpene profile and less about the THC uh, percentage level, because at the end, end of the day, whether it has limonene, which is a really important anti-inflammatory as well as um, mood enhancer, I already know that it could, it could make me high as F, but it's not going to fix um, what's going on with the pain in my hands or the pain in my lower back or in my joints um, without that terpene. Terpenes by themselves are also found in non-cannabis uh, plants all over. You can get limonene from lemons. Um, a lot of the citrus terpenes you can get from just our fruits, right? Um, and lavender, for example, linalool, 
which is a common indica terpene because it's so relaxing and tends to put you to sleep, right? That's the most common terpene found in lavender. So I think what we're missing is connecting the dots on a lot of the plant medicine and the plant wellness we already know that's actually really trending right now, pairing it with what we know about cannabis because we're too focused on the THC. I can give a masterclass on it, real talk. I think if you want to use it as medicine, uh, or not. If you want to even figure out whether you're trying to come down from a day like you're swapping out a glass of wine for it, you want to make sure you have the right cultivar. I'm also switching people over. Folks can still say strain as long as you're not saying strand, um, but strain, but know that that actually is, again, more of a street science. The, the scientific word for real for real is cultivar. And if you want to go in even deeper, uh, Sour diesel cultivar on the West Coast is not the same as New York sour diesel because of the chemovar, right? The chemical variety. You may have more of a terpene profile differently in the West Coast. I know this for a fact on California sour diesel than you do for New York sour diesel. Um, and so those are the type of things that are nuances that are coming up into play. And anybody that says they want to be in the cannabis industry, whether you're coming from the legacy market or you're the legal market, if you can't kick those ballistics, then you're not going to make as much money or be as impactful as you would like to be in the industry. Absolutely. And since you are breaking that, breaking that down a little bit, um, you know, a lot of people are um, checking for like indica, sativa versus hybrid. Is is that uh, is that a myth? Is that a real thing? Right? You know, could you talk about that a little bit? That's a myth. <laughs> it's, it's a myth. It's, a, it's not a science. Let's just say that. I mean, I think one of the things I want to do is at least give some credence to the fact that the uh, the thought process that you we need to separate and group makes sense. Because if I broke down the terpene profiles, what I just talked about with cultivars and chemovars, we could literally teach a whole course on. And it's hard to get the population to convert that way. So as a consumer marketer, I totally understand like it's like black folk hair typing, like literally I got 4A, 4B, a little bit of 4C, like, you know what I mean? Like it could get real complicated very quickly. On a high level, indica and sativa, the reason why it's a little mystical is because we have these general things that we think happen, but I absolutely like Hindu Kush is one of my favorite indicas because it looks like an indica. That's what I, phenotypically it would fall under a category indica, but its terpene profile supports what I prefer, um, which is actually sometimes more alertness and focus, which people put with sativa. So that's why it's a myth. These are really uh, phenotypic categories. It's more based on what the flower looks like and not so much about what it does. But fortunately, there are enough of the extremes of both, um, whether it's an OG Kush on the extreme of an indica or a Durban poison on the extreme of a sativa that drives a lot of the conversation about what they do. But believe it or not, most all of these are all hybrids in the way they're grown. Um, they may be more dominant sativa looking or more dominant indica looking, but at the end of the day, it's very rare that I've found um, pure cultivars that are one or the other. And I guess the last thing I'll say is it's based on the way it looks. And it the only way someone can tell you how it's going to make you feel is when they tell you what the chemical makeup is. Well, I like to tell people like, 
that especially are starting to get into the industry and they don't they didn't watch you know that Snoop Dogg and Wiz Khalifa movie about Dev and whatever go to high school where they break down Indica and Sativa because that was like my first experience hearing about it uh I try to tell people okay what do you want to feel like do you want to feel relaxed do you want to wake up do you want to you know feel kind of waking up but more in your head or body wake up and once you kind of break down how people feel it's easier to tell people where what they're looking for especially if they don't know sativa or indicas yeah and in that case i'm gonna definitely tell you the exact cultivar and by the way i don't agree with necessarily pure cultivars pure strain usage like i use what i call my cannabis cocktails i'm mixing things it's like one part durban poison one part hindu kush two parts it depends on what i need to feel and how i need to work that day and i think that that's the benefit of understanding cannabinoids and being a molecular biologist and um and also just getting to the point that one size does not fit all in cannabis it is not a monolithic uh, type of medicinal um, product is something that you can really customize to what your endocannabinoid system needs. And, you know, I know we've talked a lot about medical cannabis, but I also want to speak about something that you reminded me of the other day, right? Like, because I, uh, I think I actually said the word recreational when I was talking about cannabis, right? And um, to some extent, um, all cannabis use is, is medical use, whether somebody knows it or not. Because you talk about the the different the importance of the difference between like that that term like recreational versus adult uses. We have all these different markets coming online. I always wonder where does the term recreational come from? Like who thought that was a good idea? When I think about recreational, recreation, I think about like children's center. So I just, <laughs> yes, just uh, right. So I'm just like, who thought that was the idea? Because it's not. Um, Sam, I think smart approaches to marijuana. It sounds like somebody who don't smoke. Sounds like somebody who don't consume or it's, don't live in a hood. That that's a, that that's true, right? Like I mean, it, it clearly is a misinformed initial titling of things. It's almost like as misinformed as still having an H in your marijuana in your legislation, not understanding the history of marijuana as a term, and not using cannabis as the entirety. It's it's part of this misinformation and having a lack of cannabis in the legislation and in the legislators who are deciding it. But yeah, recreational is something that Dr. Rachel Knox, shout out to the Knox docs, they are a conventional doctors that have been leading the way, endocannabinologists um, around cannabis science and cannabis medicine. But yeah, when we say recreational, it immediately makes people think about kids. And that's why we have so much conversation about, well, what about the children? What about the access? And people are not looking at the data of the previous markets that have been around for now, adult use 10 years and they've seen less usage because it's more regulated. It's sort of like what happened with cigarette use too. Once they made it so you have to like be a certain age or older and there's all these rules around it, we saw teenage use go down. Um, but yeah, recreational to me is not the right term. Adult use is the right term because it is a 21 and over adult right to use cannabis as a medicinal um, uh, additive or as something that is just going to be to relax or chill or however they want to use it. We're not defining it, right? Um, I think also recreational means that if you're participating in the market and chose not to get a $300 medical marijuana card like you have to like in Arizona, it means that there are medicinal uh, benefits and that's just not true. I, I'm participating in the adult use market because I have medical ailments and as 
as an adult, I have a right to buy this product, not because I'm trying to recreate or what have you. I think it's words mean a lot. And maybe because I come from, again, this, the consumer brand marketing background is like, we're leading ourselves down a, a path to be constantly in battle. And so I encourage all advocates to make that switch over. Um, and I don't mean you, you know, you have to switch over everything. Um, sometimes for a while I had to, in some states say adult use or recreational, cause they was like, what you talking about? Right. Um, the same way when you're talking about cannabis, sometimes you have to say, or marijuana, just so people are aware. But at some point in the next year or two, we need to drop the recreational. We need to drop certain, uh, you know, negative terms that have perpetuated because we've had ignorance perpetuating in the lawmaking. And I think we have to really come to a clear understanding that sometimes 21 and up is not the most ideal. You know, we've seen, yes, teen usage have gone down, but from 18 to 21, arrest rates have skyrocketed across all adult use markets and medicinal markets, not so much, especially when they allow for uh, you to get a card being 18 and up, but Adult use markets, absolutely. You're walking around with a target on your back. So this whole idea of adult use, like adults vote. You're 18 and up, you can vote. You can get a driver's license. Why don't we do that? Versus, you know, everyone wants to compare it to alcohol, but it's not alcohol. Alcohol is is killing people when you're drunk driving. You know, alcohol is getting in a bar fight. There are a lot of things alcohol does for people versus cannabis doesn't really do that. So why are we eliminating, eliminating it? Why wouldn't we do it more like tobacco in the South? You 18 and up, you're going to get it. Right. I mean, I hate comparing to tobacco or alcohol because to ice point, like cannabis is medicine first and always. And unless you use and rubbing alcohol on a teething baby um, or, you know, you know, it, it just to me is just like, where is alcohol medicine? Um, where is tobacco medicine? It's like, it's not. And so I think what it is, is about simplification of creating in industries. But what we found is when we try to regulate like alcohol, the industry has not thrived. And I think the success comes from recognizing that your medical market is your baseline for your adult use market. The more you convert people to your medical market, the better your adult use market will be because you already have people custom to shop in the market who are aware of the, the benefits of cannabis. And so then it's easy for them to want to buy it over the counter or adult use. That's why I go back to the Advil model because we don't have a good one. Even though it's a plant and it's not manufactured, people are not afraid to use ibuprofen, whether it's branded by Target or by J&J, &J, because they are comfortable with it from the prescription side too. Um, and then they're like, oh, I know, I remember what that 800 milligram was and I broke it in half and I was able to take four 400 and it was good. So I can use these 200 milligram capsules. I'll just take two. We've become more consumer confident um, in our purchase uh, by having a stronger understanding of a little bit more of the science. Right now, we're not confident about much, not about the equity, not about the quality, and certainly not about the science. Right. And, and you know, since we did, since we were talking a little bit about terms that, that we should do away with, I think it's important to note that things are shifting now that cannabis culture is coming from like where it started um you know to say plain like people of color being arrested and um by the war on drugs and it was you know it's the war on drugs now we're talking about a cannabis industry um so another thing that's that's important for people to say or i think the term you used earlier legacy market right and that's one that a lot of us use but people necessarily 
um, I think in the greater world don't necessarily know the difference between saying that and why they shouldn't say black market um, or things like that also. Right. Well, in Vegas, right before we left, it was like this whole black market killer um, like campaign and stuff. Boycott them. I don't know what they thought they was doing, but that was like the worst idea ever. Um, I do not like using the black market. I don't even like using the underground market because it's like, are you stealing our underground railroad to get away from freedom, like, like to go to freedom? You know what I'm saying? So I'm just I really struggle with these terms that people are coming up with. Um, I hated the black market idea. I think that it has a terrible negative connotation. Uh, but I do think that we have to come to some kind of clear understanding because every region has its own slang. Every region has its own like way they talk, their swag. So how do you have a universal thought, but then allow it to be like regionally cool too? So there's a little bit more science behind the language. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Um, I started transitioning. People started saying gray. Um, there are some people who are like, pro, 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 pro black folk. And they're like, yeah, let's keep it black market because it's a diverse market and we want to keep the black market black, which I, listen, I feel that too, but I think we've had too much negative thought around it. And every time a white male uh, regulator or lawmaker says the black market, the illicit black market, it drives me crazy. Um, I like legacy because it means it already existed before. It is the established market that we are trying to make money off of in a legitimate way. And by we, not just the operators, but the states and the municipalities, government wants to now find a way to tax this. And they should, right, to some degree, but they haven't acknowledged that the legacy market is a true market with its own supply and demand and price point and dynamics all apply. And the more that you try to act like it's just a bunch of thugs and criminals, the, the less successful that, that one transition of the consumers over are, but also less transition of the revenue. I think it's a mistake to continue to use terms that do not resonate with um, the population that you want to shop your legal market. Um, I've been calling other ways that I say um, when I, people don't understand legacy, although I teach them that, is unregulated because that's a fact. It's an unregulated market. The same way uh, that you can go get your hair done um, by a licensed barber, which has some regulations around how that license can be used, displayed, et cetera, et cetera. Or you can get your hair done or done in your, in your man's uh, garage. That's an unregulated haircut, right? I think we have to look at real uh, scenarios and real analogies um, as we are looking at the cannabis space. That's why I don't believe we need to over-regulate because guess what? The unregulated market, the legacy market has been thriving and growing year over year despite 40 years of some of the most ridiculous uh, drug laws that we've had on the books. Now those are waning. They're coming, they're coming off the books or we're, we're holding them, you know, more their feet to the fire. Cause technically New York's been decriminalized since the 1970s, but not, you couldn't tell all those people that got arrested that the point is that now even more so the legacy market should be thriving and it is. And instead of people allowing folks to hyper criminalize it and make it more of a threat, what we need to do is say, no, Let's just admit that we didn't criminalize something 
you know, we criminalized something incorrectly. It was wrong. And so these people are not doing anything wrong. They are legitimately just giving haircuts and doing hairdos in their garage or kitchen. It's unregulated. And we want to convince them, come, come get your license. Come be a part of a regulated market. Right now, I feel like all of the legal markets, even my own, I um, that I oversee in Oregon, need work to convince someone. If I was somebody already making bank doing hair in my kitchen, no, you would have to convince me quite a bit to come into a market that's going to make me do all this hoop jumping just to get a license to do the same thing that I'm doing in my kitchen. Happily so. Right. And, and while we're talking about regulations, I want to make sure, because everybody may not know, we'll make sure we're perfectly clear. We're talking to Commissioner Dashida Dawson of Portland, Oregon. Um, and, you know, and it was super dope to see, like, you know, you, you bring, what I've always loved is that you bring this um, not only business experience, but also cannabis business experience, like, to that position. Um, you know, and I think that's something that we really need to see as regulators. And also, it was super dope to see how um, you know, I guess a few months ago, I had you ladies um, all on one webinar, and now I've seen you all form an association. Um, could you talk a little bit about like that experience, what it's like to be a regulator, um, you know, as a woman of color, and then also about the you know, the new um, Regulators of Color Association that you all formed? Yes. First of all, thank you so much, Shahir, for having the vision of having us on. Um, I also want to just clarify that Portland doesn't have a commission structure. So I am what we would consider to be the cannabis czar, um, the head of the industry. I have a team of seven. We handle on the licensing compliance side, but we also do community engagement, equity, uh, cannabis competency is a big one. Believe it or not, despite Oregon being one of the earlier movers in the industry, there's still a lot of canophobia. And so I'm probably one of the first leaders that has true cannabis competency on the science side, um, understand it as a patient. And then yes, I have business experience, both out of cannabis and in, and it makes it a little bit easier for me to understand how do we make sure that our licensees have a thriving market? How do we ensure that the overall economy is thriving um, under cannabis? Because that leads to more cannabis tax revenue, which can, in my jurisdiction, leads to more community reinvestment. So one of the things I was able to launch in the last six months was the social equity and educational development initiatives or the seed initiatives, which is really all funded right now based on a cannabis tax revenue uh, fund that is reinvested into the program for me to put back into the communities that have been most adversely harmed. We're one of the first to do it in the country, but it's glad to see Illinois really blow it up with their 3R strategy. And I think part of when I came in, a business mind that I am is I look at things as we need to learn from the insights going on all, all, all over the country, but also outside of the American countries too, American states too, because other countries are actually doing a better job and a faster job. But I thought we would get there faster. And when we were on our uh, live with you, it was just so dope to be there with Nina and Cheney and Shalene and just be like really riffing on what we've learned and how we've been able to impact more progression. Um, and so so we decided that we needed to form a Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition. And CRCC is really just what it sounds like. We are government officials that have been appointed or selected to oversee cannabis industries, legal markets, medical and adult use, um, hemp and marijuana. And um, yeah, we're, we're equity centered. We're focused on driving uh, regulatory models and building regulatory frameworks that actually are meant to deliver on the reparative 
regenerative and restorative justice components of the Global Cannabis Decriminalization Act. The world has put too many people behind bars for this and ruined too many communities for this, for that not to be the first thing we're thinking about when we're creating policy. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it is important that people understand that given the history of cannabis, it's important that equity should be at the center of, you know, regulations that are being formed in the cannabis industry. But still here in New Jersey, um, where I am today, we just had a cannabis bill put out for legalization where the word social equity didn't even appear in the bill once. Um, could you talk about this? I mean, what, why is that important? And, you know, what are some of the things that people are doing now to um, kind of become active around that? Well, I'm going to toss really quickly this to Ice because she actually testified um, in front of the assembly. And, you know, Ice, for her, that was your first time testifying, although we've been lobbying and doing a lot of, you know, education. And I think it's important for people to recognize that their personal story has to come to the table when you're talking to legislators because they care about, they're supposed to care about their constituents. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, believe it or not, I'm more of the shy sister. Uh, so I'm not shy with them, but okay. in public, I am pretty shy. So it was, uh, a little bit different from lobbying because lobbying, you know, they give you what to say, you go to the rooms, you don't have to say anything. You could give them a paper, you could hold a sign, you know, you could chant with everybody else. So it's not like just putting the spotlight on yourself. So that is always feels a little bit intimidating. Um, it especially feels intimidating when people are like, this is the most progressive bill ever. And you're like, wait, what? Like, have you ever read a bill outside of New Jersey? Like, right. so that was definitely a difficult thing to swallow. I think that, um, you know, for me, social equity really honestly has just started becoming a trend. It's kind of like with a lot of things in this country, things become a trend out of nowhere. You know, Dashida wrote an article about social equity and creating diversity within the cannabis industry three three three, four years ago. So at this point, this is something that was near and dear to our hearts. We've been talking about for a long time. And so the fact that they gave you a minority woman's veteran disabled business development, whatever that whole, they didn't even give it an acronym, <laughs> they, like that whole thing, but it didn't describe like, you know, what are some of the requirements? What are some of the benefits? The fact that you have to get an MWBE certification in New Jersey first. Like, I don't know if you, if anyone who's watching has ever done that process. One of the businesses that we own in the um, Dawson Group have, and it is not really like the easiest process because it's very tedious. It's a lot of administrative work, a lot of like going back and forth with the, um, with the different departments. And everyone knows that, people in government don't really do their job the greatest. So right. it does take a very long time to even get that. And then to turn around and just only be 15% of um, one portion is 15% of the licenses added up to 35%. It was just way too much. It was a hot mess. It was like, y'all did not tap into any of the people of color that's been running New Jersey. New Jersey's been talking about cannabis since 
I don't know, forever at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Governor Murphy came in on that platform. And the first time I did a, a conference there was in 2017, where I was on stage, um, I believe, with Jeff Brown. And we were really behind on the medical front. The program was still a very tiny size, and they were still arresting more people per year than the number of medical marijuana patients on the books. So New Jersey has a lot to overcome. They're number three in the, the country for total number of people arrested for cannabis possession. Uh, they're spending almost $145 million per year arresting and incarcerating folks. So that's a savings. Um, black folks are 3.4 times more likely to be arrested in New Jersey for cannabis possession as compared to white folks. And in some counties, and I'm calling out Hunterton, so I'm like, every time I'm on a live, I call out Hunterton because it's 10 times more likely. And you're like, there, there are no black people in Hunterton. Same way there aren't really that many black people in Montana. So when you have that type of percentage, what that means is if you're black, you are literally and on the street, you're going to be talked to by the police. Uh, you're going to be harassed by the police. They're looking to do that. And I think those are the counties that have, no, they really have the most to uh, uh, restore. They have a lot to uh, provide in restitution. And if you're not talking restitution, restoration, and reinvestment, then I don't think you understand the thread that cannabis prohibition being racially biased in its enforcement um, it, it, it lends itself to all of the health determinants of Black and Brown folks being really poor, mortality rate, unemployment rate, um, our uh, median household income. And in our memo that CRCC sent to the New Jersey legislature, we quote everything. We have um, uh, references and citations for everything. And maybe it's a scientist in me, but we want to make sure they're not confused about where this data is coming from. It's coming from the CDC. It's coming from uh, um, our uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Like It's coming from places that we've been tracking for a long time. And it is directly correlated to the way cannabis prohibition was managed in this country. Um, and New Jersey was a big culprit. The other thing I will say is with it missing equity, right, even in the name is like a little bit of tone deaf on the legislature for not even including it, given the year that we've had racial equity, talk about trend, right? After George Floyd, racial equity has become that thing where everybody put their black uh, squares up, but they clearly did not decide to go back and do in their job some of the equitable things. I, I feel like they would have, instead of saying socio and economic disadvantage, it would be more definition about what is a cannabis equity applicant look like? What does the cannabis equity fund look like? How does this happen? More recently, just so folks who are engaged in what's happening with New Jersey yesterday, we found out that they were adding or potentially proposing to add an excise tax. Um, and that was now, it's being dubbed the social equity excise tax. And I'm like, what? What? Why um, we got to get the target? <laughs> first of all, one, it makes people really hate the idea of social equity, right? Because they're like, oh, our weed is more expensive because we give them a social equity. But two, excise taxes typically can come and go very easily. It's not the same as a sales tax, which is an ongoing and pretty set revenue stream for uh, uh, the, the state. And so the fact that they're not willing to look at this brand brand new revenue, knowing that $145 million per year is going to be saved, and not even just on math alone saying, all right, well, off rip, that 145 we saved, guess what? We'll be net net 
zero, we'll put 145 million, first 145 million out of the revenue made directly back into those communities per year. I mean, that would be just even some baseline. But with the excise tax thing, it means we have to wait until the Cannabis Regulatory Commission is placed and fully and coming up with what they think they should do it, use it for. We have to wait till the industry has actually made money before we start to see equity. So it won't be day one. And every time we've seen us wait, it has not been a very fun uh, path to fix. Look at Massachusetts. Um, look at, uh, oh my God, LA is right. a, Ooh, that's a mess. mess. You know, mm-hmm. I, I just, I can't stress enough that we need to be more innovative. I mean, we need to look at what's Oakland doing. What is the city of Portland doing? Illinois on paper, what they'd like to do and learn from maybe the mistakes in the execution of it. But we're not doing that in this New Jersey bill. And that is what is frustrating for me. My whole thing is, you know, at the end of the day, there are not that many New Jersey uh, cultivators, dispensaries, like there is just no access to cannabis. So they're sitting here and trying to regulate nothing, right? Like you're regulating an idea because there's not enough cannabis to even like support the amount of people that voted yes on that public question one. So when they have this bill out of thin air, that's a remix of the bill that didn't even get passed last year. You know, I just feel like they're trying to play us. Like I'm not from, I'm not like fully, fully from New Jersey, but I've lived in New Jersey. My dad's from New Jersey. Uh, He's a Jersey city guy. And you know, he was a social worker during the height of the war on drugs. Like it really pains him to talk about some of the stories that he had to endure, you know, football kids that he taught on his football team going to jail just because they have a joint. Uh, so there, these kids are no longer in the city. How do they get the impact? How do they become a part of the impact zones? You know, Jersey City is completely gentrified. It does not look like what I grew up going to Jersey City like. So it's really just a struggle of why are you trying to regulate something that you don't have right now? Why don't you guys just create maybe seven amendments that are just like, you know, we're going to have these seven things that allow the community to use cannabis and not be prosecuted and then take your time to do a real bill a bill that benefits you absolutely right and definitely in new jersey because i'll say growing up here it's one of those places where the war on drugs and driving by black and all those terms that people say were so real right like like you said hunterton county there's certain places in new jersey where you you don't even you know you even drive through you're guaranteed to get pulled over here yep. in Trump, where i grew up like, I mean, it, more than three of us riding in a car anytime we were going to be pulled over and searched. So I definitely see it as like, if, if we're going to have this legal industry, people that endured all of that definitely have to have an opportunity to, to participate. But they got to fight for it too. Um, the constituents got to see that, uh, sorry, the legislators got to see constituents in the seats. And I know it's hard with COVID, but also recognize the leverage is in the people's hands. Most of, or a good percentage of the Senate and the Assembly are up for re-election next year. And I'm being very blank about it. If you don't have cannabis competency and you're not willing to learn about it, then you don't need to be regulating it. And you definitely don't need to be legislating about it. So it's one of those things where I kind of feel like it's like shit or get off the pot. If uh, black and brown leaders within the legislature are not willing to listen to other black and brown cannabis regulators from across the country, then it's like maybe you do not 
are you're not thinking about the best interests of your constituents. We're telling you what we had to fix. We're telling you the pains that we currently have, and the recommendations are really based on what we know has resonated and what has worked. And it does require innovation. It requires some negotiation, but above all, I think it requires rebuking this idea that cannabis revenue can't solve everything. Well, no, maybe not, but it definitely is a very good effing start. Right. And I just, you know, I definitely think that's a great point. And people have to understand that if we talked about it on She Blaze on our special episode with me, Dashida, our older sister, Imani. The government works for the people. The government works for you. Like, we got to stop pretending like, you know, we work for the government. The government works for you. We put these people in positions. They're technically supposed to serve the residents of New Jersey. So if they're not working for you, if they're not serving for you, then vote them out. They got to go. And some of them are kind of just ticking too long in their seats anyway, if you ask me personally. Right. And, and Dashida, I'll ask you, because I think it applies to New Jersey, but this is something that probably the most common question that I've been asked as I've been, um, you know, working on social equity here at NCIA. But people always say, what is the perfect social equity program? And I know the answer is that it necessarily doesn't exist. But what do you think are some of the key components from what you've seen from different programs like around the country that that need to be like a part of every um, you know, social equity program? I think that's a great question. And thank you so much uh, for asking. The first is the key component is we drop the social. Equity is something that we've definitely started, social equity is something we started to bastardize in the industry. It's the new affirmative action. And we do have a lot of people who really hate it um, just because of the way it's kind of being uh, dubbed, um, almost like a welfare program. It's another democratic reform type of program. Uh, uh-uh. We are looking for equity in uh, policymaking. And if you Google social equity, you'll see that actually that's a term in public policy that's meant to be how equitable is your policy in terms of making it accessible to everyone. A perfect example about equity is that if you go get your license, for example, there's an area for hearing impaired, there's an area area for seeing impaired. We think about what other people with maybe some impairments or disabilities may need, and we try to make sure that they have access. We don't think about that for whatever reason for uh, the inequities related to race. And I think we have to think about that a little bit more. So I've been dropping social. We've been using the term cannabis equity because it means basically what equity can be driven from a cannabis economy. And God, there's a lot. Starting with a fund, cannabis tax revenue is a new revenue for every single state. Um, And it will be a new revenue, uh, a new larger revenue for the federal government because they still get about $1.4 billion per year in cannabis tax revenue from those states. But um, it's a new revenue. And so out of the new revenue, there needs to be an allocation of a fund that specifically is meant to cultivate cannabis equity programming. Now, cannabis equity programming is also not just about whether you want to be in the cannabis industry. While I do think that is very important key performance indicator of an equity program, we should definitely be looking to diversify the industry. There are a lot of people, especially in the baby boomers, they did their time. They overcame uh, the hardships of being arrested and having time incarcerated. And they actually don't want anything to do with the cannabis industry, but they would like to open a business, right? They would like to have resources. I believe that the fund has to look at equity in total and community investment in total. And some of that community reinvestment is about 
education, economic development and empowerment, um, entrepreneurship, expungement, um, and, and criminal justice. And some of it is about entry points into the cannabis space. And so looking at it as a portfolio of money that gets to be spent in the different areas and invested in the different areas to help drive not one particular part. So many people are like, I don't know if I support cannabis equity because I don't know if I want to be in the cannabis industry. And it's that's such a limited thought because the prohibition destroyed youth centers and destroyed parks and, and had disinvestment in communities as a result of so much over-policing. And so the money should be utilized to rebuild centers, to rebuild educational um, programming, and to, to start some pro, you know cities from scratch. I mean, if you look at East New York, it's still it ain't gentrified yet in Brooklyn. It still needs reinvestment. And it does, it definitely needs to be um, on the level of inclusion for black and brown folks in the reinvestment of the community. What we're finding like in Newark and in Jersey City, it isn't black and brown inclusion. It's gentrification um, and price points going high, black going up, black and brown folks are being pushed out. And I think cannabis tax revenue allows the folks to maybe stay in and be able to build what they need. Um, the other thing I will say equity involves is patient equity. Black and brown folks are patients too. We need to be educated about how we're patients, but urban trauma PTSD is real. Trust me, I know, I know, you know, growing up in Trenton. It is what it is, but that is a one ailment that we probably know can be resolved with cannabis, but a lot of people don't want to participate in the program. It might be cost prohibitive. It might be something that you're worried about your job. So we should be having practices and education around health um, components of equity and also protection of patients. Um, HIPAA is supposed to protect, but I think there's a lot of confusion about that. And the state can put in place things, other policies that also protect patients. And you ask, well, why does that even help with black and brown folks? Guess who gets randomly drug tested more than any other group in an employment environment um, is black and brown, brown folks. And so, you know, I think there are different levels and we've identified them within the CRCC memo, but it does start with funding. None of this works. If you make a cannabis equity applicant designation, great. But if you are bringing people into a place that they cannot survive because they can't, you know, stay with the amount of funding required, then you are still setting them up for a failure. And we've seen that. Last and not least, I think equity is also about access and the application licensing process. So yes, having an applicant designation, um, identifying either that the person is Black, Indigenous, or Latinx, or they have been arrested directly and have a certain income level, or they maybe are um, within a community that has had the most impact. Um, and I think it's or, right? It's not, oh, all of these things must be checked off the list because that's the hoop jumping that we do. I think I can make a very strong argument about why any Black person, no matter what your socioeconomic background is or where you are from, deserves to be given some sort of access to this. Because to your point, you driving around in Hunterton and your BMW, you might live there. You probably still going to get pulled over. And if God forbid you got a bud on you, you, which, you know, that's what the numbers are showing, you're going to jail for it. And they're counting that and they're putting it on their Facebook like we got a real nab right here. Um, and so it's important for us to understand that this was a racially biased implementation and it wasn't about where you're from. It just so happens that black and brown people convene in the same communities. And so those ones have been impacted. But we know with gentrification, they've also been pushed out in the last 10 years too. So we got to have a balance of it, right? And um, 
um, I think my last, last point I'll say is that if you don't deliberately build a program, it's not ever going to be built. If you don't deliberately put in policy um, from the start and you have to go back, we'll be taking years to catch up because we're still taking years to catch up. We're less like 2.1% of the total industry ownership. Um, and more and more, I'm still seeing, you know, white boys able to cross over whether they have a cannabis uh, arrest in their background or not. And they're still able to get funding. Um, you meanwhile can have an MD, MBA, MPH um, and be black and God help you be black woman and you're going to have a struggle getting funding. So if we really want people to be surviving and thriving in this industry, we also have to have funding for that. Right. Well, you know, on top of, you know, equity um, being the right thing to do for all the reasons that you said, I think one of the things that people often miss out on is the business case for diversity, right? And you spend a lot of time in corporate America and even as Ice talked about with cannabis culture, it's something that, that our people have been you know, been been doing for a long time, you know, what do you think or, you know, what kind of impact do you think that could have, you know, what kind of impact do you think it has on the cannabis industry, like just becoming more diverse from a business perspective? Well, I mean, I, <laughs> that's like, uh, it's almost like it's not even rocket science anymore. So on the one hand, we are like never meeting our legal revenue projections. Why? Because the le legacy market is diverse and there's trust that has been built. The pe Some people I know my age, they've been going to their plug for 20 years, bruh. Like, right. And so how are you going to get that person to stop utilizing their plug and to go into a dispensary, give their ID, potentially be scrutinized, you know, the, or even watched? Because in some legal states, the police will target people after they're leaving, people of color. That has been a real thing. And so it, it, it isn't thriving. It isn't thriving because we do decide the culture, ultimately. Um, we do decide and we are the leaders of it. Um, and I think what we, they've been doing is they've been trying to substitute in um, musicians, right, to make it so that we are uh, supposedly like, uh, in, you know, going to just cross over because Method Man has a new um, line, right, to Cal. And no disrespect to Cal, but unless to Cal is also helping to make social impact nowadays, what we found in um, uh, any industry is that we want our brands to be giving back to our communities. And so that's a really strong business case to say, we're buying more black owned, we're buying more Latin owned, we're buying more indigenous owned. We want to support authentic use of the culture, not co-opted uses of the culture or appropriated usages of the culture. And essentially right now, that's all the legacy market is doing is co-opting and appropriating. And so, yeah, they're not surviving. Also on the business internal side, we've learned and we got mad stats that say that you put more diversity in your executive leadership, you're driving more revenue for your business. Business. And that's because you have a diversity of ideas and innovation. Um, and I'm going to just give a real big plug to the Black women because we are known to come and be brought into a business. I was known as Olivia Pope of Tar Target. That means there's no business problem that I could not solve. And I think part of it is just how we've been kind of bred. And like Stacey <laughs> Abrams said, we've gotten accustomed to overperforming and coming in and taking a, wait, making a dollar out of 15 cents. That's real, even in the corporate world. It's 
is more like making a million out of 15K or, you know, making 10 million out of 150K. That's that's sort of what we're, we've been able to do. And so I see it on the inside and on the outside and it's being overlooked. The You know, even let's look at camera, the Cannabis um, Regulators Association, their website compared to ours, I have to say it, is dry as F. They picked the all green, it's all white male. It looks like the cannabis industry. And if it is, is any consolation, there's nobody that I know from the legacy market that has built brand that would be like, yeah, that's looking like I, something I want to drop what I'm doing to go do that. Right. No, I also struggle a little bit because, you know, there's been a huge trend in the cannabis market where they're only pigeonholing black and brown people in even if they give them a c-suite opportunity it's like oh you go and do marketing your chief brand strategy like who, who you know jay-z comes into the industry and the first people he joins is this super white cannabis company right and he's a mate a name that i mean yes you can make up anything i get it it's business you know but it's like wh what do you do bruh and did you give them money to do it or did they give you money to do it and if so if you got money, how are you putting it back into the community outside of like Rock Nation even? So I'm really struggling actually with the black influencers and celebrities rolling up into this industry. Not really, you know, I think for me, I don't want to say bowing down, but not really coming in and respecting the people that put work in on the ground, work in the trenches and giving back to those people. Uh, I always remember when, Dashita first met Wanda James. Wanda James, you know, for us, she's been in the industry a lot longer than everybody. She is the first black woman owned dispensary. This is like, you know, like we were hearing about her even before we got into the industry. When we came into the industry, we gave our respect. We we said, thank you, queen. Thank you. We're going to come do this in this market. But we at least said, thank you. We at least gave acknowledgement to it. There, There's none of that with these black influencers rolling. They make these brands with these ultra white cultivators, ultra white companies, and they think they we're going to buy it and we're not. So I actually am having really struggling with it a little bit to be truthful with these different black influencers rolling up into the cannabis industry. Yeah, man. Well, you know, I feel the same way. Like I grew up in African people's action school here in Trent. Right. So yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you were like black as F right. from early. We, we mad black too. We all could tell with our names. <laughs> yeah, like, but you know, if, if, if black people came into the industry and they did say, I want to invest in the Simply Pure, a Marion Maine, a Viola, right? A Elevate Cannabis, one of them, like it would be completely different. Like if black dollars came into the cannabis industry to support our business it is something that's important that has to be said um, Absolutely. I wonder, like, I often look at the Kaliva story and I'm like, dang, what would that have looked like if it was, you know, Jay-Z hooking up with Seyun and doing Elevate, right? What kind of real story would that look like an inspiration for us? But even, um, you know, supporting the advocacy groups as uh, all of this stuff happened with George Floyd, and, you know, again, no disrespect to the Last Prisoners Project, but let's be real, that's still a white-run uh, nonprofit organization that's supporting mostly white uh, uh, offenders or previous offenders, if you will. Um, and meanwhile, you know, M for MM, MCB 
UBA, all of these other organizations that are um, minority led would, would still kind of have to be nickel and diamond to get support. Everybody drew their support, all these large uh, predominantly white corporations through their support behind things like that. And I just think we miss out on an opportunity to really be authentic in our uh, push of equity when you're not even equitable in the way that you are donating or uh, doing philanthropic efforts. It's a real issue. It's a lot of posing in the industry. And I think we're at a point now, and I know I'm going to have to run soon because I'm actually running into my next meeting, but we're at a point now where we just don't have the energy, I don't, to not call it out for what it was. I was already a little blunt, but now it's like, geez, I've got to get to the point where I just got to shut it down. If you're not saying the right thing and you're not doing the right thing, you're going to get called out. It's not going to be successful. We kept our mouth shut for the rise and fall of men, men. And I'm not here for it anymore. I don't think there's any reason to keep my mouth shut. Um, my 2021 motto, and I'm saying it on every single show that I'm on, is that I'm a black woman and you can't tell me nothing nothing. I, that is 2021 going forward. And I, 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 I'm sorry, but I feel like it's important for us. She's laughing, but it's important for us to be that gangster as we move forward, because already we have this, this whole galvanization around black lives is already waning. And, and I don't get to wane. I'm black every day, all day. We don't get to wane. And the challenges never go away. We need allies to stay on the train and we need them to make sure that they're also holding each other accountable. And we also need to make sure they're not embarrassing us. I can't call you an ally when you come in and you testify and you tell legislators, this bill is good, even though it doesn't have equity mentioned one time. So that's the type of call out we are at this point. I don't know if it's even calling in. I think it's very clear, the legacy market as colorful as it is, we have a lot of buying power. We need to stand behind it. And either they have to go all the way back to arresting people and in droves again, or they need to move forward with the right thing, and that is equity-centered legislation. Absolutely. Now, it's so dope to have y'all on, man. I, you know, I can go on forever, you know, but it, it's definitely... We got to come back. We got to come back. Uh, yeah, we definitely got to do this again, but like I said, it's definitely a pleasure having y'all on. Um, tell people, you know, where they can find you on social media, how they can listen to She Blaze, and, and anywhere, anything else y'all got going on you want to leave people with. Oh, awesome. Well, She Blaze is on every Saturday at noon Eastern Standard Time on Facebook Live. And we really, if you think we call people out right now, like we just had an episode talking about how much money Scott Miracle Grow gave to uh, their uh, the nonprofits and the campaign for question one in New Jersey, none of them were people of color ran uh, or supported um, nonprofits. So, you know, that's speaks a lot. It was $800,000. It's a lot of money, especially if you come from a like a people of color nonprofit. So we give a lot of tea. We give a lot of dirt, cannabis news and culture. Uh, and we are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, YouTube, WeTube. You can watch us anywhere to hear all the dirt and tea because we really don't hold our tongue on She Blaze. No, we definitely do. And she always brings the receipts and I'm always happy to be her sidekick. So you can see me there as a co-host, but also you can find me on at Dashita Dawson on Instagram and on Twitter or Dashita Dawson, the weed head on Facebook here. And of course, uh, the weed head and company is theweedhead.com where you can find uh, some of our favorite items, education. And my book is How to Succeed in the Cannabis Industry, third edition. It's available on Amazon, target.com, Barnes and Nobles, and the ebook is on theweedhead.com backslash shop. 
Yep, and to close that, I just got to say one more time, celebrate. We got your soror, my my fellow fellow Howard alum in the White House, man. You know, AKAs, we taking over everything. <laughs> yep, that's why you can't tell us nothing. <laughs> nothing at all. Hey, well, it's good catching up with y'all, and I'll see y'all soon. All right, bye. Thank you. Bye.